This week's episode is sponsored by Imagine Learning. Traverse is a new social studies curriculum from Imagine Learning that brings the past to life through inquiry-based tasks. Developed in collaboration with renowned educators Kathy Swan and Sam Weinberg, it's a different approach to social studies, engaging students by giving them scenarios and sources and letting them debate and form their own conclusions. Traverse reflects a world that students will recognize from what they see around them, helping them connect learning to real-life societal issues. Find out more at imaginelearning.com slash traverse. That's imaginelearning.com slash traverse. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering innovation in education at all levels. So it has been a year since the release of ChatGPT, quite a year, and educators are still scrambling to respond to this new generative AI tool. So far, much of the conversation has revolved around the double-edged nature of these AI chatbots. On one hand, teachers are really worried that students will suddenly cheat on homework, since these chatbots can write actually some pretty good essays in ways that are hard to detect. On the other hand, educators are also curious about the potential for these tools to save them some time on things like writing lesson plans. These are important issues, and we're going to continue to cover them here at EdSurge. But generative AI raises much bigger questions and more fundamental ones. That's because many experts are predicting that ChatGPT and all these other new chatbots released by big tech giants like Google and Microsoft are just the early versions of this new kind of AI. Just this week, Sam Altman, who's the leader of ChatGPT's maker, OpenAI, announced the company is working on the next generation of their chatbot and what he described as super intelligent tech tools that are as smart as humans. And that gets us into the realm of what, until recently, was science fiction. If we're on the cusp of this revolutionary moment where machines can match wits with humans and maybe even exceed our thinking power, that will likely bring massive shifts to knowledge work, including in academic research and in the white-collar workforce. And that will raise these big fundamental questions about what is the point of education in this new world? And what can educators do to prepare for these big changes? Recently, we came across a working paper that takes on these very questions. And it is a fascinating read. The paper is called The Future of AI in Education, 13 Things We Can Do to Minimize the Damage. As a reporter here, I have been trying to keep up with this generative AI trend. But even I had some moments reading this paper where I was like, wow, I had not thought of that. These authors aren't arguing against this technology at all, but they point out that if it lives up to its billing, AI is going to require some careful guardrails, especially in education. So for this week's podcast, I connected with two of the paper's three authors. One is an education consultant based in New Zealand, Aaron Hamilton. I'm a group director of education at Cognition Learning Group. The other is Dylan Williams an emeritus professor of educational assessment at University of College of London's Institute of Education. I formally retired uh, 13 years ago, and the last 13 years I spent uh, as a freelance self-financing academic working with people who I want to work with. And what I like most about this conversation is that it made me think about what it means to learn and what makes our brains special compared to these AI tools. I started by asking Aaron and Dylan what they mean in the beginning of their paper when they say that many educators these days are being too parochial in their response to ChatGPT and other AI chatbots. I would, I mean, Dylan, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll chime in on this as well. But I, I think it's uh, it's human nature for us to all um, think in, I, I suppose I'd almost say football manager terms. So we, we take each game as it comes rather than thinking about the whole season or the next season after that. And we think that there are some, uh, and, and it's natural for, for all of us to do this, to think that there are some immediate short-term implications of this technology. Uh, around children's learning and how teachers leverage this or do not leverage this technology in the short term. 
Uh, but the thought in the back of our mind is, well, um, this is only the first and weakest iteration of where this technology is likely to be going. Uh, we in education always talk about the notion of preparing children for a world that we cannot possibly imagine. So maybe it would be a good idea if the three of us, so D Dylan, William, John Hattie and I, um, sat down together and thought through, well, where is this going? What might this world look like? And therefore, how do we join the, the dots back from this to the education systems of here and now and where this might all go in, in, in the near and in the medium term future? Teachers see their main job as getting their students credentials for, for a world that probably won't need those credentials anymore. So we see that the, the, you know, the schools are so focused on getting the students these credentials. And I think AI raises, first of all, the question about whether these credentials have any value. But secondly, what will the students' reactions be? Will the students be saying, I don't care about these credentials anymore. They're not going to mean anything to me. And therefore, there's a huge issue about what schools are for. And I think that we haven't had that debate in a long, long time, ever since the rise of formal qualifications in schools. And I think it just raises all those issues about what on earth are schools for? And that's why I think the debate has been very parochial. It forces us to, to get our heads from the, the plow, the, the furrow we've been plowing, and think about what, what, what do our students need to thrive in this world? Yeah, no, and I, I hear you. And, you know, we've certainly written articles at EdSearch about assi assignments, professors changing their assignment a little bit to, to, to adapt to the reality. But your questions in your, in your paper, one of them, I love this one, is, as, is it, these are the big existential ones to give an example for everybody. And I'd love to hear you talk this a little bit out. Um, it says, your question, do schools and universities have a future or will the machines soon be able to do everything we can and better. Yeah, and uh, I, I suppose where, where our thinking came on this uh, was to say, well, what, what are our brains? How do they operate? How do they do what they do? And um, although um, what I'm about to say is probably controversial in, uh, I guess, mainstream, you know, just, just in public discourse in, uh, in the wider world, this is not controversial uh, within the scientific community. Um, our brains are very likely... Uh, meet computers. They're very likely uh, gate-based neurone structures uh, that pass information uh, back and forth um, and work on some sort of statistical basis. And in fact, uh, lots of the early uh, work on brain modeling by people uh, like McCulloch and Pitts and then also uh, Hubel and Weissel back in the back in the 40s and the 1970s, respectively, um, they were trying to develop mathematical models of how our brains process information how our vision systems work. And it is exactly these models that are being leveraged by things like ChatGPT and DALI 3 uh, to do what they are doing. And that raises profound questions about uh, will there come a time uh, and how quickly will that time come where the systems are able to uh, emulate uh, the higher order cognitive tasks that we, that we are able to undertake and do that at a fraction of the cost uh, and at, at much greater speeds than we can. I think the other point is that you're absolutely right that the, the education is threatened, but that's only because in most countries, education focuses on the things that AI and large language models do very well. There's a whole range of things that will not be affected by artificial intelligence. There are things like you know being a, being a good plumber, being a good electrician, being a good plasterer, those are increasingly going to be really important skills because of the kinds of things that AI won't be able to do. I think the reason that our traditional education models are so threatened is because AI turns out to be really, really good at the things we have, I think, in my view, placed too much value on in traditional schooling. Like, give me one example of, of, of like, be a big example of that, you mean? Well, just, just look at the chat GPT-4 and its performance on medical licensing examinations, or all these traditional tests, you know, on AP calculus. The fact it's passing that, these easily, yeah. It's passing these things easily. And we've been, we've been saying that's the purpose of school is to get kids to do really well on these tests. And there's a really nice study published recently that shows that with generative AI, people who have high school or below levels of education, 
very little of the work that they are doing is going to be threatened or is going to be automated with AI. Whereas about half of the work of those with PhDs is going to be very easily automated. So it's, it's the white collar people that are going to be most, most threatened by AI. And I think our, our school systems are designed to actually inculcate the skills that AI is good at developing. And it just highlights the fact that we've, I think we've lost the plot in a way in education. We need to be focusing on a much broader range of outcomes as giving our students things that AI will find much more difficult to do. But it comes back to this big issue of what is education for? In the working paper, you discuss four different scenarios um, for humanity broadly in, with AI here and, and getting better and what these scenarios might mean for education. So I wanted to take a, a couple minutes and go through them quickly one by one. The first one, um, again, this is kind of what could be uh, depending on how things go as AI develops and as, as we respond to it as a society. The first one is we, as a, as a society, decide to ban, to largely ban AI, um, which y'all admit is unlikely, but but is largely restricted. So what what is that scenario like and how does it impact education? So there's, there's, there's this, Jeff, there's a step before that, which is that um, we might be at another false dawn. Uh, so, 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 so we might have had this excitement around these current models and then lots more private equity money uh, gets plowed into further growing them and then everyone gets um, disappointed with the outcomes. Um, so, so that is a possibility. We, we've been here several times before. So back in the, I remember when back in the 1950s, Marvin Minsky, who's one of the founders of, uh, of, the, of the discipline, thought he would crack computer vision in a summer project. He had one of his grad students work on it and was extremely disappointed uh, that no progress was made. And in fact, he has passed away before, you know, before uh, that, you know, AlexNet and ImageNet had been, uh, you know, had done the, the brilliant work that, that they had achieved. So it's possible that uh, that we're at another juncture like this. So we we, we don't know. Um, some people think that we may, and some very reasonable people think that we may crack all of this within two years. Others think it'll be 100 years. The consensus judgment is 20 years. So 20 years of continued investment and growth. And we may have disembodied systems um, that are as good as uh, you or I um, at, at, at all tasks, disembodied tasks. So Dylan was talking about you know, they won't be able to uh, walk upstairs. They, they, they're dreadful still at driving cars. Um, maybe they'll get there. Maybe they'll get there with time. Um, and we might get to that stage where actually you and I are having a conversation like this on, on, on Zoom and doing this podcast. And you've got no idea whether you're talking to the real me uh, or whether it is my, uh, you know, whether it's my digital doppelganger and vice versa. We might both be at the beach stroking our respective dogs uh, and, and uh, our, our AI assistants are, are, are doing all the heavy lifting. So. Still, so the, the point I'm making is this, there's still some ambiguity about how long it will take us to get to this place where uh, where, where AI might might be as as good as good as us. Um, but in the meantime, one of one of the questions, one of the reasonable questions that is often raised is, well, well why can't we just legislate to uh, slow this down? It could have profound risks. Well, let, let's let's just stop it completely uh, and let's um, instead invest in uh, alignment research so that we can better control these systems before we unleash them. Um, and our, our hunch is that um, that is um, unlikely to happen. So already the cat is out of the bag. Um, yes, there was the Bletchley Conference uh, two weeks ago and also the executive order that's uh, that, that's just come out of the White House. But there's going to be at least another four or five years, I think, before there is a, a, a global consensus. And that gives AI companies more runway uh, to, to do lots more innovation within that time frame. I thought it was interesting that Elon Musk was talking about the need to restrain AI models, and then suddenly, a couple of weeks later, he announces his own rival in this space. So I think the whole thing is, 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 is yeah, I just don't see it happening. I mean, it would be great if we could do that, if we wanted to do that, but I don't see any possibility of that happening. So that would, yeah, that would give us as a society the most time to work out how to respond and to have uh, a coherent plan uh, that, or to, to operate as humans have uh, at this timescale we're used to. But the cost would so, be huge. The cost would be huge though. You know, just think of things like protein folding, which we, we can't do very well as humans yet. And maybe quantum computing can contribute, 
But we're going to, you know, if we, we, if we leave AI alone and don't use it, then we're going to miss out on incredible cures on treatments for, for inoperable and untreatable cancers. So mm, you did mention, yeah, you did mention in the paper that the COVID vaccine, or at least one of them was, was done quickly in part because of some AI techniques to that, 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 yeah, that made it happen in, in the speed it did. Okay. Okay. So that's unlikely. So scenario two is that um, humans and AI work side by side, which, you know, that I'm certainly hearing versions of that people talking about, but you, I noticed that in your paper, you noted this is AKA fake work. Um, tell me more about why it's fake work. So I, I, I don't think it will be fake work in the short term. I, I think in the short term, we're going to see uh, a, a narrative and the narrative's already emerging about humans and machines uh, uh, riding together. The co-pilot, right? Isn't that the, the computing tool already is called co-pilot that, that will just be in it together with the AI tools? Exactly. So, uh, you know, the, the, and Copilot is uh, uh, Microsoft's uh, integration of, uh, of G- uh, GPT into the in, into the full office system, kind of like a 21st century version of Mr. Clippy. Um, but the, diff- I, uh, the difference might be that rather than it telling you how to um, make a font italic and how to underline something uh, because you've never used the word processor before, instead it might be saying to you, oh, I see you're trying to write the uh, quarterly report or I see you're trying to do a lesson plan for, uh, you know, for I don't know quadratic equations. Let me let me do that for you. Would you like me to uh, to, to help you uh, with that? And he, here's the thing. Uh, I think in the short term with these models is that if you're an expert and you leverage these systems, the the current research suggests enhances your performance. There was a really interesting study. Uh, Harvard Business School uh, published a few weeks ago where they had some uh, consultants at BCG, Boston Consulting Group. Some uh, did uh, authentic workplace tasks using AI. Some did it the old-fashioned way. The ones that used AI were uh, were, were much faster and, and got as good or if not better outcomes. So I think that there will be, uh, in the short term, strong potential for uh, business professionals, for educators even, to use these tools to enhance their performance and enhance their productivity. What? concerned uh, is uh, around the impact on novices. So if you're a child and you're using this technology, um, you do not have enough background knowledge or information to know whether the outputs are accurate and say, oh, I think it's gone off on a statistical aberration. I need to reprompt it and to ask again. And you may take that information at face value. So the risk in the short term, until we get some guardrails around these systems is that um, it might actually reduce or harm children's learning or or send them off in into the wrong direction yeah, in I the think... longer term sorry go, go no go ahead we're just going to say but in 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 the longer term uh so jeff coming to that fake work scenario as these systems are working side by side with us as they're reading our emails as they're watching us on webinars and seeing our facial uh, uh, reactions and, and how we operate um we're sort of potentially over time uh, training them up to be mini doppelgangers uh, of us uh, to to, uh, to do work um, people like Peter Dimantis and also Mustafa Suleiman speculate that within 10 years, we may have AI companies that, that literally all the workforce is AI uh, with just one or two humans in uh, leadership roles because you need a human to actually sign the legal documents. AI doesn't have rights to, uh, to, to, to do those things. And that those uh, companies may uh, pull ahead because they've got more efficiency in their uh, in their production process. They don't have all the transaction costs of all these meetings with humans making decisions. Um, and that therefore, the other companies that, that are not currently uh, AI orientated need to go through a similar process, right? They, 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 they need to be more efficient too to keep up. And so they also uh, look at ways of shedding human workers. But Governments might therefore react to that and say, well, this is problematic because suddenly everyone moves from full employment to unemployment and also it destroys the economy because there's no one to buy the services that the companies are producing. So we put legislation in place to force the companies to keep people in work, even though they might not be doing anything that is terribly productive. Yeah. So, you know, we can easily see a scenario that says that for every $100,000 of turnover, you've got to employ one person. And so, you know, the, the government just specifies you've got to keep, keep these people on the payroll. 
and then the companies have to figure out what to do with them, and what it'll be, what it'll be will be fake work. You know, they might try to dress it up and make it look a bit more authentic. But I think the important thing to realize is, you know, we talk about novices and experts. I mean, you know, I use AI quite a lot, but most of the things I use AI for, I'm able to judge the quality of what the AI produces because of my expertise in that area. When I'm stepping out of my area of expertise, I have no idea whether what it's saying is sensible or not. And that's the real problem. It, it, we, we aren't going to be able to be um, good judges of that. And therefore, the, the, the owner of the company that's producing all this stuff will, will prefer the judgment of the AI rather than the humans. And so the humans really will be doing fake work. They will be literally contributing nothing, but they will be getting a paycheck. And they may actually quite enjoy it. They may enjoy coming to work and meeting people and you know, playing that role. But it you know, reminds me of the old story about the modern factory run by one man and a dog. And the man's job is to feed the dog. And the dog's job is to stop the man going anywhere near the controls. Yeah, no, you, you point out um, in the working paper that if machines can do all the higher order thinking tasks faster and more accurately than humans, um, you talk about being super Einstein, super Edison, or super Freud, or super Abraham Lincoln, all rolled into one, that there may be no next level up for us to pivot to. Yeah. yeah. Of course, it's all important to remember that this is really quite radical. And it goes back to something that Hans Morovetch pointed out in 1989. He said, it's comparatively easy, this is, this is radical, it's comparatively easy to give a machine the problem-solving capabilities of a human being, but almost impossible to give it the perceptual capabilities of a two-year-old. The things we thought would be really hard, like playing chess, has turned out to be really easy to, to automate. And the things we thought were really easy, like stacking shells at Walmart, turn out to be really hard to automate. And so the problem is that most of our value comes from the things that we thought were, were hard to automate, and they turn out to be quite easy to automate. But as I said, you know, we're still going to need electricity in our homes. We're still going to need plumbers and electricians. And, you know, according to one estimate by Hatsius and others, that something like 38% of the work currently being done in rich societies will not be affected at all by AI. We'll still need those people. What I'm interested to see is whether there'll be a change in status, that people who work with their hands will now come to be seen as far higher status than people who do mind work because the mind work is easily done by machine. After the break, we'll hear some of these scholars' suggestions for taming AI and why they are optimistic about how things are going so far. Stay with us. This week's episode is sponsored by Imagine Learning. How do you get students to understand the connections between people and events in the past and things they see going on around them right now. Imagine Learning's new social studies curriculum, called Traverse, takes historical and social concepts and makes them truly relevant and relatable to students. It grabs their attention with inquiry-based tasks that makes them think, question, investigate evidence, and draw conclusions. Traverse is a modern, digital-forward, adaptable program full of engaging content that appeals to different learning styles. It includes a library of more than 1,500 high-quality sources, innovative video formats, and a range of interactive digital tools to explore the past. Developed with and by teachers, Traverse hits state standards and saves on lesson prep time, with all the resources needed to create memorable learning experiences. The Traverse team will be at the National Council for the Social Studies, the NCSS conference, in Nashville, Tennessee, December 1st, to the third. So make sure to check it out in person if you'll be there too. Or find out more at imaginelearning.com slash traverse. Now back to the episode. Well, I want to get into scenario three, which is that we upgrade our brains um, as a society to keep up with these super machines, these AI tools that as they evolve in the next few years in this potential, you know, scenario. Um, and you call this transhumanism. I mean, other people have used that word transhumanism, but this transhumanism scenario is essentially us. It's, you can imagine a sci-fi plot on this, right? That, that we somehow are able to modify our brains and, and become uh, able to do more than we can now. And in this one, you say schools and universities kind of are, are different because there's no need for them in a way. 
Is that right? And why is why why is that? So the, the, this scenario, uh, and, it, and it's very speculative. It's not considered um, science fiction in the sense that it's impossible, but it, it's um, technically very difficult. Uh, and there are there is some early work uh, currently happening in it. Um, for example, one of Elon Musk's companies, Neuralink, is has just uh, uh, got a permission to do human trials to embed uh, a neural lace. Uh, into people's brains to connect it with uh, with, with neuronal junctions uh, to get it to, to move limbs and and so forth. And there's been some previous work on this back in the 1970s onwards around helping to remediate things like epilepsy. But but basically the the argument is this: it's to say, well, shucks, um, if we find that uh, we're no longer um, cognitively sufficient to keep up with uh, advanced AI. Um, one option is we 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 just go off and uh, and make daisy chains in the woods. The other is to say that we uh, we 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 want to upgrade ourselves in some way so that we can keep up, and we might do that through uh, having um, technology that's being experimented with at the moment. But I think it's probably at least forty years out before it could be usable uh, mainstream and probably painless to use, which is brain computer interfaces. Um, and the speculation around this is that we could get to a place where you could drink a glass of water and it's got nanites uh, in it uh, and they travel up, they pass through the blood brain barrier and they attach themselves like limpets to uh, or fridge magnets or however you want to imagine to the various neuronal jun uh, junctions in your brain um, and enable you to basically uh, Bluetooth to the cloud. I like fridge magnets. OK, but fridge magnets that let us Bluetooth to our electronic world exactly so um and and if we could do this um i mean probably the thought that might already be coming to your mind and also to listeners minds is that that film back in the night in the 1990s the matrix there was that man in the strange long coat and uh, he was able to learn uh kung fu and jujitsu within three seconds um so theoretically this could be uh this could be uh, a, a real possibility uh in the future also, what could be a possibility is that we don't even need to talk to each other, because if I could Bluetooth to the cloud, we could just Bluetooth to each other's brains. Uh, and, uh, you know, we could just have a little binary burst of information back and forth to each other. Uh, no need for any long winded pleasantries. The whole conversation would be over in less than a second. Oh, boy. And so one, if, I hadn't if we heard that all one of that. Why, why would we need, you know, the provocation is, well what, uh, well, what role does schooling play in that? Because it is a data, you could argue, it's a kind of really complex data transfer process. That's what, it's a long-winded data transfer process, and we found a shorter route to it. It's a long time since I read it, but I think Frank, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, 3001 has such a scenario where Frank Poole is brought back a thousand years later, and he has this moral quandary of, does he get this implant? Because he's just not going to be at the same level as everybody else in the year 3001 unless he gets this cognitive enhancement. So, you know, I think there's, real, there's, there's, there's good parallels there. But I, I, there's one point I, I think we need to be... Um, I'm, I'm going to stick to Moravec's paradox. And I'm, I'm going to say that, yes, these implants will make us better at these logical reasoning things, these PhD-type things, but they're not going to make us good at Kung Fu. They're not going to be able to get us to play the piano because those are much more to do with the embodied mind. So I think, first of all, I think that AI basically restores humans back to the things that humans were evolved to do, which is to control our bodies. All the other stuff is kind of um, stuff we're not, you know, calculus is not something humans were evolved to do. We've learned to do it, and now AI will do it better. But the other thing I want to put on the table is this idea that the that we are defined by or we derive dignity from what we do for a living is a relatively recent idea. So, you know, certainly 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, it was regarded as being rather undignified to have to work for a living. You think of the landed gentry in England in the 1800s, you think of, you know, all those um, people in Downton Abbey. They didn't, the whole point, they didn't have to work and that was good. So maybe we need an education system that prepares people for a work of le for a life of leisure and you know, thinking fine thoughts and having discussions and arguments. And we may have to redefine where we get our dignity from, because it may be that the world of work won't be available to us anymore. Well, that gets at the fourth and final scenario in your, in your paper, where you talk about maybe the humans will just check out of doing most of the heavy lifting and let the machines take care of it because they're better at it. And then 
the rest of us could, we could have a system of a universal basic income, which has been experimented in small scale, um, you know, some places, but this universal basic income, I think you called it a freedom dev freedom dividend. Um, and so in that scenario, it sounds like you're about to get to it there, but what, what does education look like? It's not about getting us to do, teaching us to do the things to run the world anymore. No, it, it, it is uh, it, it is very, very different. I mean, I, I, I wonder if it's something that's a bit more like um, P, uh, P, um, Peter Gray's notion of uh, free to learn. So, uh, you know, like the in, in the US, you have the uh, Sudbury Valley School model, for example, where children come together. They work on passion projects that, that interest them. They, they work in self-selecting groups uh, to tinker, uh, to, 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 to engage in, uh, in, in hobby projects. And they and they develop useful skills. They learn how to socialize, how to cooperate with one another, uh, and and do things that um, are, are useful within their local context. Musical instruments. You know, basically every child learns to play a musical instrument. I mean, you know, I think AI is quite impressive, but I wonder how good it would be in a jazz group, listening to the other musicians and riffing and picking up on what other musicians are doing. That kind of thing seems to me to be a, a distinctly human activity. And so, you know, let's think about art and music and dance and drama as the priorities for schooling rather than math and science. Now, some have argued um, that because of things like the existence of mapping apps on our smartphones, that people are getting worse at finding our way and doing directions without the phone. And I wonder, you know, you, you make a pretty bold possibility or, you know, I wouldn't say it's a prediction. You sort of say there's a possibility that if some of these scenarios of AI getting this good come to, to light in the next few years, that there might be a time where humans forget how to read or like as a group don't need to learn how to read. That's pretty diff That's pretty, pretty big claim. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I'd say it's not a claim. Uh, it's it's a it's a deliberate provocation and a point of speculation because we 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 want people to say, uh, "Awuga, awuga, these things could be coming. Let's think about them now rather than uh, you know step over the cliff uh, uh, once once we've got there and then go, oh shucks, it's too late now." Um, so so that 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 is why we're we're throwing these provocative hand grenades um, out uh, at, at this stage. Um, but I suppose uh, there's a kind of if I if I take two steps back to the the, the point you just made, Jeff, around uh, you know other things like map reading or even calculators. Uh, you know, uh, people say, oh, well, they result in moral decay or, or intellectual decay because uh, pe people can't um, do those tasks anymore. Um, it sort of is true, but it's freed up our cognitive capacity to do other important higher order thinking tasks, right? So uh, if our ancestors ported to, to today, they, they might lament and say, well, Aaron, why can't you ride a horse and, 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 and your chain mail, where is it, right? Uh, because these, these things are no longer relevant. Okay? But what's happened in that process is that we, we've developed other things that are useful. So they'd say, oh, that's really interesting. You know how to use this thing called PowerPoint. Why, why, why is that useful in this, in, in this current? world but the challenge is that uh with with this advance uh in ai um that it's able as we, as we spoke we spoke to we spoke about earlier to undertake all of those uh cognitively higher order functions it becomes a calculator for everything it could do your maths it can write your business report um it could give you a script in your glasses so that if you're teaching a lesson you don't even need to think uh, it just tells you what to say to the students and you read it out um, and if you a glasses prompter read, of yeah, yeah here Tell, yeah. teach this. You, you might even have traffic light indicators so that you know that appear above children's heads that tell you whether they're on task or not and then they tell you what to do and what to say to them um and uh you know and if you've uh if you've forgotten how to read because you you don't know um it might actually just adopt your voice and speak on your behalf and then the children who have their own uh homer simpson glasses on and their own earpieces they see your lips moving through their glasses but your lips aren't really moving at all you're just you're just standing uh at the front of the room you're not, you're not doing anything but the so the provocation here uh because jeff you raised that question of well might we forget how to read well um literacy has been a relatively recent thing it's only been the last few hundred years where we've developed this skill it's really it's actually really hard we have to co-opt a part of our brain that actually is generally used for facial recognition and we're borrowing that uh to to, to, to use for, for literacy now, I, I, if you've got GPT-4, which uh, which I have, you can talk to it already uh, and it can answer you back in a, re a relatively realistic sounding voice. 
So I'm wondering, uh, you know, how many more iterations we get to before you can just have natural conversation, before if you're interested in something, it can make you a video, a little video uh, like the of the fidelity of something you would get on the Discovery Channel, but it would make it for you in a few seconds. You could watch it and understand it. Or even you could just put your uh, AI, your VR glasses on, port into the metaverse and have a chat with uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, well, digital Caesar, it's not really him. He's, he's long, he's long deceased. Um, and inquire about why he crossed the Rubicon, uh, ask about the fall of the Roman, uh, the Roman Republic, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can do all of those things, uh, why, why would you need to learn how to read? My view, I, I, I like Aaron's provocation. I think reading will be important simply because we, most people can read faster than they can listen to, to, to speech. But I think that you know, this idea of having a conversation with um, Caesar about why cross the Rubicon, you know, it reminds me of how many people who are retired spend time watching the History Channel. You know, they're not doing it for any purpose other than they find it interesting. And I think that, I think that basically what raises for me is this issue of how do we prepare people for a life which is not defined mainly by the way that they derive their income. I think that's, a, that's, a, that's I, you know, I know that many of the experiments with universal basic income have been relatively unsuccessful. But in my view, that's because they haven't addressed the fundamental underlying problem, which is that people get meaning and dignity from their employment. And I'm saying, let's look for a world where that isn't the case, where people get their dignity and their meaning from other things like their, their pursuits, their, the way they play bridge or the way, way they play the clarinet rather than what they happen to do to get income. So we, I want to make sure we get to some of your recommendations because these scenarios are the provocations, as you pointed out, for taking action, for people at least, you know, uh, teaming up to, to do something to prepare for possible scenarios like the ones you've described. Um, there are 13 of them. I'm not going to go through all of them. But one of them, or a couple of them, revolve around regulation that you, you're proposing some pretty, or, you know, I guess you're proposing, you're proposing some pretty serious regulation uh, around generative AI. Um, what are some of those? And, and what, yeah, what do you think is needed here? I think that the, the first provocation we raise is that um, we should, even though this is not likely, we should work on the assumption that we might only be two years out from systems that can uh, be as good as you are. I think it's more likely to be 20 years out, um, would, would, be my, would be my personal realistic estimate. But if we think from that perspective, it puts the feet to the fire and makes us say that we need to make fast progress. Policymakers need to, to make fast progress with this. Um, and actually, some of this, we, we wrote this when we were first working on this. It was back in about May of this year. Lots of the things that we'd, we were discussing at that juncture, we we're actually really delighted that the, the, the new White House um, executive order, the, the discussions at Bletchley Park uh, in, in the last few weeks as well have, 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 raised, uh, have, raised similar, have raised similar themes. And the discussions are Maybe they read your paper. Consensus. <laughs> or, or, or great minds think alike. You know, there's there's a limited sort of range of things that you can do. When we looked at this, we looked at how um, you know things like uh, nuclear uh, non-proliferation was taken forward. Like so, so how did how did governments solve that issue? Uh, how did governments address human cloning? And there's there's a fairly standard set of measures that have been adopted. You know, for, in the in the modern era since the 1940s onwards. Um, there's normally a, a global agency that's established. There's normally country chapters. Governments normally license the you know license the companies, whether it's pharma companies, whether it's uh, you know even car companies. There's licensing. There's safety requirements before they're allowed to uh, release their products uh, out into the wild. So we 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 think that those uh, that those, those are important. We also think that there's um, there, there are um, benefits to setting the bar higher for um, AI and education technology that gets into the hands of children, right? Yeah. So one of the things that, that strikes us, I mean, I, I do a lot of work in uh, uh, low and middle income countries. And what's really interesting in many of those contexts is they have committees that vet textbooks. They actually go through them and say, oh, well, we can't say this or we can say that. Uh, and there's a lot of work that goes into that. But um, there isn't similar vetting or review of AI systems or edge tech types of technology. They just they just land in classrooms and uh, everyone uh, hopes for the best that there will be. Um, 
Um, so there, there is a, a, a UNESCO have already suggested that there should be age restrictions on this technology. Children under 13 shouldn't access it without guardrails. Uh, without frameworks in place that mean that the technology knows that they're a child uh, and that they may be trying to get it, they're trying to get it to do their homework. And so that instead goes into Socratic tutoring mode and says, well, I know you're trying to get me to do your homework, um, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to help you uh, to get there by yourself because we mustn't rob you of a, of a learning opportunity. So I, so I would endorse that, but I'd say maybe maybe that should be an even higher age. Uh, I know that if I was a, a young person again, I don't think I could trust myself to always use it in that manner. I might say, oh, well, I'm a bit busy. I'll just get it to do my homework for me. Uh, and then maybe, you know, when I'm the age I am now, I'd be a, a, a dribble, you know, dribbling wreck because I've, you know, I've robbed myself of, you know, hundreds of learning opportunities across the years. Yeah, we just did a piece the other day where um, we pointed out that the the AI companies have age restrictions. Um, they're They're a bit mixed um what they are and the chat gpt open ai actually has one that asks 13 to 18 year olds 13 to 17 year olds to have a parental permission to use the service though there's no actual mechanism to collect that permission so um it's it's more of a click share thing than a reality i believe but you know it is it is something that the companies themselves are working through because uh, bard has a no minors can use it at all according to their their use policy. So um, the, the companies are kind of have different answers to this question of, of age. But your recommendation is that children should be it, do this with caution or have guardrails or have restrictions because it, it's not that somehow it's, it's going to stifle learning if you don't. I think I'd take one step further. I, I think I'd, what I want is, is if they propose to make these things available to children, that they should be specially sandboxed versions of AI that are designed to be educationally sound and actually to pr promote learning rather than just making the company, you know, rather than the Wild West. Um, we, we, we learned this with um, things like Excel. We, we learned that Excel is not a good environment for learning about spreadsheets. And something more like um, Andy DeSessa's Boxer is a much more constrained environment that actually helps st students learn about spreadsheets. And therefore, something similar, I think, could be quite easily managed within the, these large language models. It makes me think of Neil Stevenson's Diamond Age, which imagined a kind of AI tutor long before these lear learning models were being talked about to, in the mainstream. Um, that, so there is a, a, a version that could be very tailored to gui guiding a young person through um, learning a lot of important things. The other thing I want to think that needs to be put on the table here, particularly with, with education, is that I'm very skeptical about the power of AI to do good tutoring and good teaching, simply because most, most AI look at the things that will work in the short term. And what we know in education, there's lots of good studies that show that things that are effective in the short term are ineffective in the long term. Psychologists describe this as the difference between learning and performance. So performance is how well you complete an instructional task and learning are the changes in long-term capability that result. And the work of people like Robert Bjork has shown that things that actually degrade performance in the short term actually lead to better long-term learning in certain cases. And it seems to me that most of the AI is focused on getting the student through the piece of work rather than helping them learn anything. So when I talk about feedback, you know, good feedback doesn't improve the work. Good feedback improves the learner. And I think most AI is focused on improving the work that students submit for assessment, for example. It doesn't think about whether that's going to help that learner become a more effective, independent agent. Perhaps a simple metaphor is the, the spell checker. The spell checker helps you improve the work that you hand in for assessment. It doesn't teach you how to spell. And so my worry is that AI is, because of its need for very rapid feedback loops for learning, it's going to be particularly ineffective in education where the feedback loops are years long. That's so interesting. Last week on the podcast, we had Peter Lillidal, who is has this method called Thinking Classrooms, but he's an educational researcher that he argues that a lot of what happens in um, K-12 schools is mimicking, which is similar to what you're saying, where the students are doing the same exact problem they've just seen, but they haven't internalized how 
to to do it. They haven't learned the longer the, the, the they haven't changed their brains to understand what's happening. Well, I think I think um, I think Peter Lillard's point is slightly different. I think what he's saying is that he doesn't like that procedural approach, whereas right. well, whereas Alfred North Whitehead. A uh, hundred years ago, said civilization advances by the number of things it does without thinking, and you know, oh. you know, very famous mathematicians have said things like, you know, you never understand maths; you just get used to it. And so, you know, I, I think that we can overstate that. The, the question is whether that fluency is is at all useful anymore is a separate issue. But oh. uh, you know, I, I think that certainly knowing your multiplication facts, for example, is really, really powerful in terms of making you helping you think. And that creates issues for what kind of education we want. So yes, I agree that a lot of the mechanistic calculations that kids go through don't help. You know, I, I, I learned how to do long multiplication and long division and find square roots. I learned to calculate with logarithms. And, you know, I, I don't really want to admit that, that all that time I spent learning those skills is completely overtaken by technology. But, you know, you have to admit that. So the question is, what, what kinds of things we want young people to be able to do. And I think I'm, I'm, still, I'm still really confused about this because I see so many people talking about throwing out the baby with the bathwater, say we don't need to anything. And I'm just saying, well, you know, my ability to think like a mathematician may be predicated on all those things that I can do without thinking. And so what are those disciplinary habits of mind that we want? which may still be important, even when we're using AI, just in terms of ability to think prob through problems, to get to the point where we can tell AI what we want it to do. That, I think, may still be valuable. And so that might be a role for education. Well, I'll link to the entire set of recommendations, but what are one or two more that you think are particularly important of what can be done? I think we're nearly there with some of them. I think the idea that if AI, has, if a video has been produced with AI, it'll be a criminal offense not to make it clear that it was produced with AI. You know, I think that the European Union is going quite, I mean, I'm very skeptical about a lot of the EU's regulations around technology, but I think this one is potentially very powerful and not too difficult to actually um, enforce. So I think we can actually get a world where you know, we can't stop people producing fake videos, but we can make sure that they're labeled as fake videos uh, or there are, there are serious sanctions for the people who, are, who promulgate them. So I think things like that, I think, are, are, are necessary and doable. And there was another one where it was um, uh, established systems to monitor and assess the AI application's safety and performance and impact. Yeah. And of course, that, that, that also ties into the bias thing. You know, the, the fact is that AI just reflects the internet back to us. And it's as biased and as wrong and as corrupt as the internet itself. So I think also um, we, we need to be requiring AI companies to train the large language models on more representative data sets. Mm. So that you know, the facial recognition data sets include people of different ethnicities, you know, the, we've already seen this in, in medicine where simple things like um, pulse oximeters are just not calibrated appropriately for people with darker skin. And so I think we need to learn the lessons from what we've seen in, in medical um, technology and apply the same things with, with AI. And also much uh, stronger interpretability research. So this is becoming a, a theme within uh, the AI community at the moment. There's there's growing interest in which parts of these models are lighting up when they're asked to do different tasks and to try and make inferences about um, how they're coming to conclusions about things. So if if we get to a stage at some point in the future where we allow uh, AI to autonomously make decisions uh, about things or to help us to make decisions, maybe you have a judge that's making a sentencing decision and he or she uh, uh, looks at the, uh, you know, or consults with the AI to, to help them in that process, um, we would want to have much greater understanding of uh, which nodes are lighting up, what what the what what the biases are potentially within that data set uh, before we uh, before we rely on that as a source of information. And in fact, that's a huge positive because 
We can't tell how humans make these decisions right now, so we have no insight into the decision-making processes that humans go through in making these high-stakes decisions. And we know that human beings confabulate when they're asked to explain their decisions. They make up stuff that has nothing to do with the real reason that they made the decision. But hopefully, by actually analyzing these, uh, making these models more inspectable, we will actually be able to get better insights into how these decisions were made when they're made with AI than we'd actually have if they were made by humans. And actually building on that, uh, given that these models are um, mathematically derived from some of our own thinking processes, they might tangentially give us some kinds of insights into how our own brains process information as well. I want to thank you both for going through all this with me. Um, it's, it's a fascinating read. I'll, I'll definitely we'll put the, sh the link to it in our show notes so people can dig into it. But I really uh, thank you both for, for sharing this. And, and um, it's going to you know, things are changing. So maybe we'll have to check back in with you in a little bit to see how things are going compared to what you, your scenario is here. Thanks. It's been fun. Thank you, Jeff. Early this year, back in January, I did our very first episode about what chat GPT could mean for education. And back then I asked the chatbot what its advice was. You can go back and listen to that. It was kind of a surprising answer. Lots of people have been doing that these days, asking the chatbot to do things like write intros for speeches or write questions for interviews. That's a kind of demonstration of this tech. But this episode made me realize that to really harness AI and cope with it, we should probably be checking in with humans who are the most in touch with what it means to be human. Maybe philosophers or chaplains. Maybe they can help look at what these chatbots are doing and help set up better guardrails so we can work together with this tech in harmony. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week we bring you conversations like this one about big ideas in education. Doesn't get much bigger than these, I think. If you like the show, please follow the EdSurge Podcast wherever you listen. And if you want to dig into the paper that we discussed this episode and see our other coverage of AI and education at EdSurge, go to edsurge.com and click on our podcast page. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me online at jeffyoung.net. Story editing by Rebecca Koenig and music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>